I'm going to start my talk actually on Iran because, well, Iran obviously is a very pressing situation at the moment. Obviously, a lot of folks here know about Iran, but let me just start with some of the basics. I think that Iran has been very unfairly vilified in, in the press for many years as some sort of demonic country with a demonic government, when in fact I think the facts show it's actually one of the more, for all of its faults, one of the more moderate countries in, in the Middle East. Uh, I was actually went there in 2017. I was invited to speak at the University of Tehran, uh, and I went to Tehran and Isfahan. Isfahan's amazing, a historic city. And first of all, what really strikes you is that most of the signs tend to be in both Farsi and English. Uh, and anyone who speaks English, and a lot of people do, they love to show off their English, and they love, if you're from the United States, they love to talk to you. Amongst the population, there isn't a huge anti-American sentiment. Not anti-American people, though. They have issues, obviously, with the government, which is always something I find amazing, That, and I think all of the folks here can attest to. When you go to countries like Venezuela or Iran, you know, countries were at odds with and even threatening to blow up the map, blow off the map, you know, people are very readily distinguish American people from their government. Maybe more, you know, they may even give us more credit uh, than, than they should yeah. uh, in that regard. But in any case, the other thing about Iran, a lot of people may not know it, it has the second largest Jewish population outside of Israel in the Middle East. About 25,000 Jews live in Iran. Shortly after the Iranian Revolution, the Ayatollah actually issued a fatwa to protect the uh, Jewish population uh, in Iran. And I was, I was actually surprised when I was in Isfahan. I was shopping at a bazaar and I saw a guy with a yarmulke on. And I went and I chatted with him. I said, well, is there a synagogue uh, around here? He goes, oh, yeah, it's about a mile down the road. So we walked all the way to the synagogue and talked to, to the folks there. Um, in many ways, Iran is a very pluralistic society, and they're very proud of that. They're proud of having you know, ancient Christian churches, Armenian Christian churches in particular. I actually, in Isfahan, went to an old Armenian church, which has inside a, uh, actually a small museum to the Armenian genocide, which is quite interesting. You have ancient Zoroastrian ruins that are thousands of years old. Iran's one of the few countries in the Middle East that actually has existed as a nation for thousands of years. You know, because in the Middle East, many of the countries have been cobbled together by Western colonialists, right? Iran is not one of those, you know. And I think that makes the possible war with Iran very concerning in the sense that, you know, any war with Iran would destroy history and antiquities like we saw happen in Iraq, of course. And Syria. Yeah, and Syria. And Syria, yeah. And Yemen right now as we speak, again, we can't, you know, whenever we talk about these issues, we have to remember Yemen, which is being attacked by Saudi Arabia with the help of the United States and the UK in what may be the most devastating war in the world, certainly now, but maybe for many decades. And ancient UNESCO historic sites are being destroyed as we speak. And this has been very common to the wars that the U.S. has been fighting, particularly in the Middle East, where history is being destroyed. And I think I would posit not by accident. I think there is an attempt to wipe out the history of the peoples in that region, particularly the Palestinian people. About a year ago, in fact, there was an Amazon bestseller, which Amazon ended up yanking when they figured out what it was, and it was a book called The History of the Palestinian People, and it was a, pe uh, a blank book of blank, uh, 300 blank pages. And this, again, became a bestseller. This, but this is what those who run our government, um, they want to that to be the reality, that not only to wipe out peoples, but to wipe out their history and their memory, which is an incredible, incredible thing. And so, of course, the other thing with Iran that has to be 
recalled is that, and again, I assume most people here know it, but the first CIA operation overthrow government was in Iran in 1950, well, it began in 1951, ended in 1953 with the overthrow of Mohammad Mossadegh, who was a democratically elected prime minister of Iran. His sin was to nationalize British oil. And he offered compensation for it, by the way. And one of the issues that Britain was upset about is they couldn't agree on what that compensation was going to be. At one point, Mohammed Mossadegh, who loved the Americans and trusted them so much, quite mistakenly, offered for President Eisenhower to actually be the arbiter of what that compensation was going to be. But that wasn't enough, because that really truly wasn't the issue. The issue was that Britain and then the U.S. wanted control over that oil. And in fact, as it worked out, the British were left with a very measly portion of, of the oil concessions, and the U.S. Took, took most of the oil concessions after they overthrew Mossadegh. But I think just discussing Mossadegh for a few minutes is very relevant to Venezuela and to other countries we're seeing right now, because the same game plan the CIA ran then, they're running in other countries right now. So first of all, they had an oil embargo blockade against Iran, very much like they're doing now. They tried to stop Iran from selling any of its oil. They tried to wreck their economy. They had the CIA, this is the, again the first CIA operation of its kind, under Kermit Roosevelt, just an interesting little factoid, he was the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. He was the CIA bureau chief. And what he did, he paid people to protest and paid people to riot, to cause civil unrest in order to get a reaction from the Mossadegh government, which could justify the U.S. supporting the military to go in and depose him, which is ultimately what happened. And quite interestingly, the way they were able to accomplish it, they weren't getting the reaction from Mosaddegh they wanted. Mosaddegh was actually a very passive guy. He actually did most of his work in bed. He stood in pink silk pajamas. He was a very, you know, I always thought he's a great role model. I'm going to do my work in bed from now. So they really couldn't get the reaction they wanted. So what they did is appeal to the Iranian hospitality. Okay, Iranians are incredibly, as I experience hospitable, especially to foreigners. So what they did, they went to Mossadegh. The ambassador went to him and said, hey, you know, uh, Americans are being attacked by these street mobs. You have to crack down on them, uh, which was not true. But Mossadegh believed it, and he was horrified and, and embarrassed. This is not right. You know, these are our guests in our country. And so he ended up calling for a crackdown on these protesters. This was the impetus they needed, and General Zahedi, who was living, who had been sheltered at that time by Roosevelt, who was the guy we picked to be the new prime minister. And by the way, we picked him because he was the most anti-communist guy we could find, and we knew that because he colluded with the Nazis during World War II. So we let him loose, and he went and uh, arrested Mossadegh and uh, seized power for himself as prime minister, but more importantly for the Shah as the acting monarch of the country who ruled Iran from 1953 until 1979. With an iron hand, the CIA helped the Shah set up something called the Savak, which was the security apparatus that had tentacles throughout Iranian society and ruled the country through mass arrest, torture, in fact, in 1978, the year before the Shah was deposed, Amnesty International concluded that Iran had the very worst human rights record in the world. And then you had the Iranian Revolution, of course, in 1979. And as I write my, my Iranian book, The Plot to Attack Iran, the interesting thing about the Iranian Revolution, at least that I argue, is that the U.S. not only made revolution inevitable by foisting a repressive monarch upon the people, but they also made, helped make the nature of the revolution inevitable. And that is because, for a couple reasons, because there was a leftist, there was a strong left in Iran. So first of all, though, the U.S., the CIA worked very closely with the Savak to try to eradicate 
the left, particularly the Tudor Party, the Communist Party of, of Iran. But also, it turned out that the only place that you could safely politically organize were the mosques. And so this allowed the Islamists to organize politically. And it is one of the reasons they became a, a more dominant part of the revolutionary process. And finally, while the U.S. backed the Shah to the bitter end, Jimmy Carter was president at the time, when the writing was on the wall that the Shah would not survive, literally or figuratively, because it also he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, Carter made a very intentional decision to back the Ayatollah, to come back from Paris, where he was in exile, and become the leader of Iran to make sure the leftists did not take over Iran. And this, again, really is a very typical, almost invariable position of the U.S. to support more radical religious groups over leftist groups or just secular groups, secular nationalist groups, like Nasser and Egypt, uh, who the U.S. also opposed. And so, you know, the result is, of course, when we look at the Middle East and we see uh, governments that we don't like because, you know, we see them as uh, Islamic fundamentalists, again, the U.S. and Britain and the West have a lot of responsibility for why those governments are there, not something else. But still, obviously, the Ayatollah wasn't, he was the barely less of the, of, of the evils. And the U.S. really never forgave Iran for the uh, revolution in 1979. And, of course, backed in 1980, Saddam Hussein to invade Iran and supported an eight years war between those two countries. And at times, as you know, through the Iran-Contra scandal, actually supported both sides of the war at times. And not just to support the Contras through armed shipments to Iran, but also intentionally to weaken Iraq as well. They wanted Iraq to win, but they also wanted Hussein weakened in the process. You know, this is a very cynical maneuver, right? This is a brutal eight-year war. About a million people die on both sides. And we also know that the U.S. supplied the chemical uh, weapons to Hussein that he used against not only the Iranian population, but his own Kurdish population, as did Germany, by the way. The Germany and the U.S. is where he, they got those supplies from. Meanwhile, quite interestingly, and again, I think a lot of people in the room know this, but I think maybe need to be reminded is because now, even as we speak, Mike Pompeo and others are trying to, for example, link Iran to 9-11 and al-Qaeda. And the press has insinuated this over time as well. And the fact is that, first of all, Iran was not involved in 9-11. And two, Iran has been a mortal enemy of, of al-Qaeda. And after 9-11, in fact, offered to help the U.S. fight al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan, who they see as, you know, heretical. And the U.S. acknowledged that help under the Bush administration for a time. And Iran thought, given the help they gave, that they could have a reset in relations with the United States, which is what they wanted. You know, Iran never felt comfortable with the Soviet Union, particularly, and always had this sort of affinity with the United States and, and wanted a reset. They sent a fax, famous fax was sent, I think to the State Department or White House, I forget which, but from the Iranian government offering to negotiate every issue that the U.S. had with Iran, including the support for Hezbollah, they were willing to put all that on the table. And again, they thought the U.S. would be ready to do that. Instead, the U.S. ignored that fax. And Bush would go on to claim Iran was part of this fictitious uh, axis of evil, along with Iraq, its mortal enemy, Saddam Hussein, you know, which makes no sense at all. You know, which brings us to, the, to today where the U.S. now seems hell-bent on, on finding a way to change the regime in Iran, possibly through some sort of limited uh, military action, which, 
probably won't be limited. I'll just end, you know, the discussion on, on Iran to say that, you know, it's very interesting, this Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who wrote the Yellow Cake speech for Colin Powell, a famous Yellow Cake speech which helped get us into the war with Iraq. About a year ago, he wrote an op-ed for the New York Times saying, I helped lie us, you know, in a war with Iraq. I don't want that to happen again. And he's very against any military action with, with Iran. He predicts it will be 10 times more costly in terms of lives and treasure than a war with Iraq, which makes sense. It's a much bigger country. It has a very strong and disciplined uh, military. It has 80 million people. And so, you know, we have to, with everything we have, oppose, you know, a war with that country. Uh, yeah. Um. What do you think is the main U.S. motivation at this point to change the regime? That's a good question. I think there's several. Uh, oil's always looms there. Not access to it, because the U.S. has more access to more oil than it needs. We're now even exporting fossil fuels. So it's never been about access, but about control. They want to be able to control Iranian oil like they want to control Venezuelan oil to make sure that it's U.S. companies that profit for, um, from it. That, I mean, that's been a long-standing issue for the U.S. since the Shah was overthrown, and they want to change that situation. But then there's greater geopolitical motivations. Some even strangely religious. I mean, first of all, we have people like Mike Pence are running the government, who, I'm so, who are fanatical Christians who believe in the apocalypse, the end days, and they believe that solidifying Israel's position in the world is going to help bring about those end days. So that's a whole other aspect that's totally crazy. But beyond that, the U.S. sees Iran as really the last bulwark against its domination of the Middle East and Israel's domination of the Middle East. It comes down to that. And they want a compliant government in Iran. Interestingly, in fact, you'll you know notice that the the calls for overthrowing the government in Iran grew after the Iraq invasion. They said, "Well, because we overthrew Hussein, well, guess what? Now the Shiites have taken over Iraq in line with Iran, and now Iran's too strong. So now we have to go after them." I mean, it's just. I mean, if you look at the history of U.S. foreign policy around the world, again, particularly in the Middle East, if you believe the U.S. is, is intending to do what it claims to do, it makes just absolutely no sense. You know, it says, oh, it wants to overthrow Hussein, but now, oh, we've made Iran too strong. Now we have to go after them. We support the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, right? And, uh, by the way, we know that we support, started supporting it before the Soviets invaded. You know that. Brzezinski admitted that. We do it to draw the Soviets in, to give them their own Vietnam. It happens. Soviets have a brutal war with Afghanistan. Uh, eventually kicked at, get kicked out. And who comes to power? The Taliban, which is basically an outgrowth of the Mujahideen. So now we have that problem. So eventually we need to topple the Taliban, right? I mean, do you see this, what looks like a completely irrational and insane policy? And the U.S. now, for 18 years, has been fighting a war in Afghanistan. By the way, we're basically fighting more or less the same war the Soviets were fighting that we condemned them for, fighting the same people. And there's no end in sight. If you look at Iran or North Korea, for example, you actually have to give them credit for being pretty adept at, at diplomacy because that's really the only tool they have in a, in a very unbalanced military situation. Neither one could take on the United States. They know this, right? And so they have to find other means to do that. The U.S., on the other hand, has more or less abandoned diplomacy and doesn't even... Uh, focus much on it, and in fact, has you know got really cleaned the State Department out quite a bit, laid off a lot of people. They're not interested in negotiation, right? And and what we've done is build up a military, and that's our strength, and and so that's what we go to instead of diplomacy, right? When when you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. <laughs>
And that's what we are. The U.S. is a hammer at this point. And we've, we've, you know, created a country which shoots first and asks questions later. I'll just end with the, the quote from, you know, Jimmy Carter, who is the most quotable ex-president ever, you know, and he recently said, you probably heard this, that the U.S. is the most warlike nation that's ever existed. Yeah, well, a lot of people knew that. But for a former U.S. president to say it is pretty incredible. Okay, well, I will end it at, at there. Thank you. My name is William Camacaro. I didn't introduce myself. I have been working with Venezuela for almost 20 years. I just want to mention that I just also uh, met with Terry just a few weeks ago in Caracas. And, and we have been able to see, for example, what was the blackout. When the blackout happened, a lot of people don't have any idea what really is for Venezuelan people, what that what was really. So I was in a poor community. What month was it? That was on March. That was uh, and, and during March when the blackout happened. The, the blackout was four days, four days, five days. And you don't have the idea of how serious it is because you... You, you, you know, it's because when you have the blackout, you don't have cell phone. You don't have way to communicate through the cell phones. You don't have way to, uh, you, you don't have radio, TV. So you don't have way to get information about what really is going on. You don't have internet. You don't have water. You don't have water. You can't pump gas. Five days. Five days in that condition. And the incredible thing is that when the blackout happened, I was in the center of the city. I was with a friend, and I say, "Hey, but let's wait. This is going to be just two hours, maybe one hour." And then that was around 5 p.m. Around 7 p.m., she was very nervous, and she got a motor taxi to go back to her house. And I decided to stay, and I went to this hotel that had power, and I stay. I was in the lobby, waiting for the electricity to come back. And it was 12 a.m. 12, you know, midnight, and they said, well, what happened? What is, uh, what the, no, we don't have electricity, so I should stay here. So I went to the lobby, and they said to me, oh, it's $70. I said, no, I'm not going to stay. So I decided to walk. It was completely dark because there was no moon. You didn't have the idea to see big lines of people work, walking in the darkness, walking to go back to the place, talking among themselves, you're sharing food, sharing whatever they have, and trying to support each other in the middle of the darkness. And we don't see anything horrible. You see that anything really horrible happened. So, so that was the first, the, 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 something that was shocking for me to see. But the other thing that we were able to, to experience when we were there was the so-called coup data that happened in April 30. And, uh, and some people here were there. It was also a very interesting experience. I will let them to talk that? about it later. But, huh? What was that experience? The so-called coup d'etat again, oh, President oh, Maduro, in April 30. So, but it's, um, it's, 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 a, it's a constant attack against the Bolivarian Revolution. Every day, it's multi-form attack. It's cyber attack, uh, economic, it's warfare, economic warfare. Uh, it's all kind of different kind of attack and that is taking place almost every day. Just a few days ago, we have another attempt a coup against President Maduro. Uh, not attempt a coup, assassination. So it, it's something that is taking place almost every day. Obviously, Guaido, you know, the self-proclaimed president of Venezuela, is uh, very nervous in the United States because already half of the year have passed and nothing happened. President Maduro is still there, but in, the, in January, Guaido will not be anymore the president of the National Assembly. So, so that means that he could be in jail very soon because the, 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 the National Assembly have a president, a speaker, and the speaker is every year they have another speaker. So we will have another speaker from the National Assembly in January.
They rotate it, yes. And that's something very interesting. And that's why every day we see a different attack against Venezuela. And they are desperate. The State Department is desperate because the time is passing and they have not been able to overthrow Maduro. And then the self-proclaimed president of Venezuela will not be anymore the president of the National Assembly. Okay, our time is getting running out. But I, I just want to add... Unfortunately, for the first time, I think, maybe you correct me, I feel that we are confronting a government that is openly talking about regime change, openly uh, talking about, uh, you know, remove a person from power. We are talking about capitalism without mask, openly. And, and they don't care. No formalities at all. So we have with us um, Dr. Bahman Assad. He is an Iranian-American peace and justice activist living in the United States. He has been active in the peace and justice movement since his arrived to the United States in 1973. First as a student activist against the Shah's regime in Iran, and then as a member of the executive board of the USA Peace Council. He joined the Veteran for Peace in early 1990, in the early 90s, and has been serving as the chair of Veteran for Peace Iran Workshop Group. He is currently the organizational secretary of the USA Peace Council, coordinator of the Coalition Against USA Foreign Military Bases, and the Global Campaign Against USA NATO Military Bases, and he is the representative of the War Peace Council at the United Nations. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Dan, for setting the whole stage for us. And thank you for the information about Venezuela. I, I would like to go one, one step deeper, one level deeper than, than what we have been doing so far, and try to link these, these cases. Because I think unless we see that linkage, um, we miss the point in many ways. But before I do that, I want to take a chance and bring up something that Dan said and, and, and try to put some kind of a different angle on it, uh, if he doesn't mind. Dan mentioned that the U.S. intentionally brought, accepted the Ayatollah as an alternative to the left. Um, this is not, at least, our analysis exactly. It is correct. But U.S. had to. Yeah. Not that it intentionally decided to do that. Um, U.S. had learned from the Vietnam War that the longer a revolutionary process takes, the more to the left it goes. So you have to put an end to it as soon as you can with a middle-of-the-road leader to, to, to stop the deepening of that process. Ho Chi Minh started as, as a nationalist, independent seeker, and ended up being a leader of the Communist Party. That was a 30-year war that was going on between France, uh, against France and the U.S. afterwards. So, and they learned that, I mean, lesson from Vietnam and even applied it to Philippines during the Aquino. And the, the, the overthrow of Park, I think it was the Park family that they staged that situation, that middle-of-the-road person, Aquino, in there, so that the revolution would not move further to the left. When it came to Iran... The U.S. actual policy was to settle on Bakhtiar, Taymur Bakhtiar, who was supposedly a member of Mossadegh National Front. And they insisted, they actually bought him to accept, to act as the, as the uh, interim prime minister and be, um, allow the queen, Shah for the Shah to leave and allow the queen to be the chancellor and there would be a royal country. Council, Council, and he would be the president. It was Khomeini from Paris who declared he must go. It is not that the Shah must go, monarchy must go. That's what catapulted him into the leadership of the movement. And that is why suddenly he had the support of 90% of the population for that. And that is why U.S. had to live with it because... If they wanted to drag it on, it would be another Vietnam for many years. And it would end up being farther to the left of that, what, what, what they expected. Um, 
or wanted to happen. So that was the case. It's not different from what Dan is saying, but I'm just adding certain layers to it uh, for, for a more clear understanding. However, I want to go a bit deeper, deeper and try to put these elements together because um, in our view as a Peace Council, we don't think it's a question of uh, this administration, that administration in the US when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, they may differ here and there in domestic policy, but, but if you look at it from World War II onward, everybody has done. They may have used different methods, but the same goals before. And, and this is the case. Um, the, the, the problem is that, that uh, the role that Venezuela and Cuba are playing in, the, in Latin America are the same as the role Iran is playing and Syria is playing in, 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 in the Middle East, which is the uh, a resistance, putting up a resistance against the total domination of the U.S. and its allies over the resources, over the strategic uh, uh, locations and everything else. So this fight has been going on. Iran's revolution actually changed the balance of forces in the whole of Middle East. And up to that point with the Shah and the <coughs> and Israel has two pillars of U.S. domination in the West. One of them was gone immediately, and the whole system moved, turned around. Um, what happened was the reason, one of the reasons Saddam was so eager to attack Iran was because Iranian revolution had triggered another revolutionary process in Iraq. Even in Saudi Arabia, all the Shiites in the oil fields went on, uh, on, on a strike and started. So they had to put an end to it. This is why, from the beginning, from the time of revolution, um, Iran has been the target to stop this process. And not only the target of the United States, but also the target of Israel, definitely, and the target of Saudi Arabia, because that was a threat to their reactionary position in the Middle East. They were the pole representing U.S. interests in the, in the, in the, up to that point, until the Shah came to, uh, was in power, um, Saudi Arabia and Iran were next to each other, working uh, together for the interests of the United States. But that shifted the whole, the whole uh, situation. Now, Venezuela and Cuba were doing the same thing in Latin America, especially, especially for two reasons. One, of course, is the control of the oil, as Dan correctly mentioned, because U.S. is not thinking in terms of using. People think if you drive SUVs and use LED lights, you're going to be free of oil. That's not the case. U.S. wants to control it because they want to control the oil supply to Japan, to China, to Europe. That way they can have a leverage against these people. They want to have the military sitting on top of these oil fields to distribute the oil among these people and choke them anytime they want to. And this is the purpose. And Venezuela's oil, from the consumption point of view, yes. But Venezuelan oil by the Bolivarian Revolution was being used to promote revolutionary process in the, Latin, in the whole Latin America and supporting Cuba and everything else. So in that sense, from economic point of view, Venezuela was much more dangerous to the US in terms of what they could do than just on an island of Cuba, right? Not that Cuba was not more dangerous in ideological terms, from a socialist point of view, but from material strength to make changes in the area. And we know that a lot of things happened with the help of Chavez in Latin America. And these were important to the US. And for a while, you saw Latin America moving in a progressive direction, government after government. And that was the time that US was busy with wars in the Middle East. And now they, are, they have free time now to go back to Latin America and try to reverse the process. And they are doing it. They did it in Brazil. They did it in, in other countries. But the point is, we are not dealing with an administration, a group of lunatic people. We are dealing with what we, we consider imperialism. And this is what connects all of these elements to each other. Unless we understand, as a peaceful that we are dealing with one connecting element, which is the US imperial system, Western imperial system, that is up to doing this. We will just be reacting to whatever they do, one after the other. Okay, 
And they have managed to, unfortunately, to have us fail or struggle to stop this war machine because we have been fighting it piecemeal. Not at the source. Okay, in several ways they have done it. One, we've been fighting war issues, aggression issues, one case at a time. First come Afghanistan. It was Bin Laden issue, we were silent about that part of it, generally. Iraq came, and then we mobilized against Iraq, and it was a very big, huge demonstration in, in, in Washington, D.C., and around the world. Then came Libya, right? Again, we, Iraq was dropped, we moved to Libya. Then came Syria. We dropped Libya and moved to Syria. Then came Venezuela, right? We dropped everything else and moved to Venezuela. Without seeing that all this is part and parcel of the same process. They are linked. And the reason they have been able to do that is that they have used, and Dan alluded to it and discussed it, they have used a tactic that they have been consistently using about every country that they've been trying to attack. A few months before the, the plan is supposed to be implemented, the demonization of the leaders starts. And this includes several things. One, reducing the whole government, the state apparatus of the country into one individual. Okay? They don't say Russia's, Russian government. They say Putin's government. They said Maduro's government. They say, you know, Gaddafi. Gaddafi's government. No parliament exists. No separate branches exist. No election exists, no nothing. Ayatollah's government, Saddam's government, none of that, right? Assad's government. This demonization starts by, by trying to create a false image, distorted image of these leaders, calling them dictators, killing their own people, right? Causing humanitarian crisis, all kinds of things labeled. And they go on. I remember 1950s, I had, um, I, I remember having watched it and, and actually recorded it, but I don't have it. Mike Wallace in 60 Minutes, in 1970s, was saying that we can turn enemy number one out of any leader of the world in two weeks. The media can do it. When we created, turned Saddam Hussein into an enemy number one, 90% of American people hadn't heard who it was, and hadn't heard about the country, couldn't locate where it was. In a couple of months, enemy number one was there. Right. That's how they do it. And that's another aspect of it is that control of the media, because of this strategy, is the crucial part. I mean, media is part of this imperialist aggression. If they didn't have the media, this demonization would not have been possible. One by one. Look at the list. I have the list of these people. I mean, just, just for the sake of it. Yugoslavia, Milosevic, Panama, Noriega, Afghanistan, Taliban, Iran, the Ayatollah, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, Libya, Gaddafi, Syria, Assad, Venezuela, Chavez and Maduro, Ukraine, Yanukovych, Russia, Putin. One by one. And now they're talking about Nicaragua, I think. Is yeah, Ortega. 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 Ortega is being added now. Yeah, of course. Right? This demonization happens, and that helps pacify the movement opposition in two ways. In two ways. One, it makes a kind of creates a hesitation among the people to go against US policy of attack against these leaders. Well, by demonizing them, turning an evil character out of them, there's a hesitation. We don't want to be identified with that or defending that. That happened to us, I mean, with the US Peace Council, and Joe is quite aware of this, when we try to defend Syria against US aggression. And many of the actual big, big peace organizations in the US were telling us, responded to us, both sides are bad. We don't want to be identified with either side. So the solution is sit in the fence and watch that. Right? And this is what happened, case by case. Gaddafi the same way, Assad the same way, right? 
Well, the falsehood creates this character. And you don't want to be siding with the, the evil. Right? And you're not happy with the US government policy either, so you have to sit on the fence. That's the only solution. And watch it happen. That's one. The second thing, by doing that, they actually eliminate that root cause. That it is imperialism after controlling the world, full spectrum dominance, that is doing this. It's not because of this guy or that guy or that guy. Once you attach this to a particular leader, you're isolating cases from each other. So people fail to see the connection. Instead of looking at it, okay, this is the imperialist system trying to take over the whole world since the collapse of the Soviet Union. They want to fill the vacuum. And they have been doing that. It started with Yugoslavia and it's been going on. Of course, 9-11 gave them the, the, the good excuse to go on a rampage. But they had done it. They had already done it. Every administration has been doing that. And of course, U.S. imperialism is not new. It didn't start after World War II. It was prior to that. We know Mossadegh. We know uh, Guatemala, Arbenz, right? And many others. All of those. And Vietnam War was, was an imperialist war. And this is the issue that we have to deal with. What I'm trying to say is, unless we bring all these strings together and tie them, and hit at the root of it. We're gonna be fighting forever, case by case by case, every country comes up next. <coughs> and we cannot be preemptive. We will be only responding after the crime happens. Look at our movement for the past several decades. Every move, every big action we have taken has been after the US has done something, not before. Iraq was the only one. Iraq was the only one, one exception there. But again, after the US did it, the whole movement went down and finished. No continuation at all. And that is, has given us, given people, a sense of powerlessness, in fact. What can we do? Every time we act, nothing happens. But we don't know that we are not hitting at the cause, we are hitting at the symptoms, effects. And unless we do that, we're not going to get anywhere. This is going to continue forever. And unfortunately, the way things are going, we are moving toward the world war. Four. <laughs> Three. Yes. Well, back to Pentagon. The Pentagon just announced that... We are picking that, yeah, on Russia, yeah, and China, we are picking yeah. on China, and China is not the China of 20 years ago. Russia is not Russia of 20 years ago. These are nuclear power states. These are strong economies now. And they're not going to stomach unilateral domination of the world by the United States and NATO. So we're gonna, we are moving towards that. And these are first steps towards uh, this critical disaster. I think we need to really come together around an anti-imperialist front in the United States to put an end to this thing by hitting it at the core. Thank you very much. So, okay, let's open a space for questions and answers. I, I agree that we're, we have a, a country run by psychopaths. I mean, I don't disagree with that. I'm not sure, though, that prior presidents, presidents weren't psychopaths I mean, I think it's comparing like Trump maybe to like John Wayne Gacy, the clown serial killer, to Ted Bundy, the pretty boy preppy killer who Obama would be, who frankly, I mean, you know, still Trump has not outdone. He's putting yeah. children right. in cages. Yeah, and by the way, so did Obama. It's not necessary. Yeah, to Obama go started. Into everybody yeah. else's madness. Yeah, and yet, and wait, wait, wait. wait. Can I just respond? So, I mean, we have... Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. But, but Trump has yet to, uh, year by year, deport more people than Obama did. He's still... Obama's still the deporter-in-chief. Obama destroyed Libya. Okay? Um, 
I he helped with the coup in Honduras. I mean, I just and he said, by the way, he had the Terror Tuesdays in which he said he would. He told his staff, "I'm good at killing people." I'm not sure he wasn't a psychopath. I'm just saying, I do think it's worth more to talk about systems than people because I think it's a matter of style. I'm not a supporter of the Islamic government. And I'm not disagreeing with a lot of the things you're saying about it. And I have many leftist friends in Iran who say the same thing and who are under fear of being arrested or whatever. And, and the Ayatollah Khomeini, with the CIA's help, by the way, was very good at rounding up communists and killing them and whatnot. People who I, you know, feel a certain solidarity with. I think my argument is for the American population that's thinking about going to war with Iran that comparatively to a country like Saudi Arabia, for example, or other countries in the region, it is uh, more progressive than those countries. It has a certain, and I didn't call it progressive, I said it was pluralistic. It has more pluralism in terms of religious, yeah, more moderate than these other governments. And I think it goes back to what you were saying in terms of vilification. I don't feel my job, in fact, I'll tell you a, a quote from my friend Muhammad, who was in the Tudor party, who still lives in Tehran, and he and I have had discussions about this, and I say, look, it is a complicated issue to talk about Iran, because of course we don't want to you know, promote the Islamic government, but on the other hand, as an American, I see my main job is to stop the war. And, and again, my friend Muhammad, at least he said to me, you're right, that is your job. Your job isn't to go after the Islamic government. That's my job as an Iranian. And so we can quibble about how we view the Iranian state. But my main point is they're not our enemy. They're not a particularly aggressive country, again, compared to the other countries in the region, again, compared to the United States, and they should be left alone. And the other aspect, and again, that I talk about in my book, is that to the extent Iran has moved towards reforms since the Islamic Revolution. It's been U.S. tightening of sanctions, which have always derailed those reforms. That is to say, the Iran is not making the Islamic Republic more moderate. It's making it less so. And that's really the point. Why don't I let you take the institutional question about peace building, since you're from the U.S. Peace Council. Well, I wish I knew. I had the solution. I would have probably proposed it already. <laughs> but but um, I think we have a lot of educational work to do. There's two levels of work that we have to do, I think. Uh, one is within the peace movement itself, because it's too fragmented right now. We need to bring it together along some agreed-upon agenda and coordinate it. We need to have a national structure for the peace movement. Just going it separately, each one of us, one on, on Nicaragua, another one on, on Venezuela, another one on different days and, and different things, this will not do. We have to have a coordinated plan and be aware of what, what is going to come up next and pre be prepared for it. So we need some kind of a coordination at the top level, at the center of the peace movement, to set up the priorities, to decide what is most important to do, for the next period of time, what imperialism is up to creating, what kind of havoc, where, and, and be prepared for that. That's the level that we have to work with, I think, organizationally from within the peace movement. But there is another question of, of now we have to address the people, the public. And how do we do that with this monopolization of the media? Totally, total corporate control of the media, imperialist control of the media. That is the mouthpiece for imperialist propaganda all the way. And how do we create an alternative voice is a very critical issue. A very critical issue. And uh, to, uh, to be honest, I don't have any, any particular suggestion, but I think uh, we should address this issue as an important issue that we have to deal with. So long as we leave the propaganda. I tell you one example, when the Shah usually at, uh, arrested and tortured and killed all these Marxists or even Islamists, guerrilla movement, Mujahideen and the Fadain, 
always in the paper the report was another gang of drug smugglers were arrested and executed. You know, if you want to put it that way and leave it to the media to present it that way, we're not, we have no chance of, of, of really convincing them right now. I mean, I agree. I mean, I do think education is the most important thing we need to do. And we do need to counter the narrative on countries like Venezuela and Iran, which is a difficult thing to do because I, th- I do think the mainstream press is more closed to our voices than they used to be. Um, Brian Becker, a lot of you know, who uh, from the Answer Coalition often gives the example how uh, he was on CNN uh, quite a bit in the run-up to the Iraq war. Once the war started, he's never been on CNN again, you know, and so it is hard to get the word out. With that said, though, I do think that there is an anti-war sentiment in this country that's growing. We need to tap into that. We need to support it. And the one contribution I would make in that regard is there is an anti-war a segment of the conservative movement as well that we need to reach out to. The American Conservative Magazine has articles that you'd think were written by Noam Chomsky. <laughs> but the point is, I do think that there's more of us out there than than we realize. Again, even from some of the conservative sectors, and I think we need to reach out to them. And I need, I think we need to build a movement that I think is very ripe for building at this point. And I think it, it comes down to writing letters to the editor and, and op-eds and books. I mean, we have to get our own voice out there because the narrative is pretty closed right now, as we all know. I think that the Venezuelan Embassy Collective was probably one of the best acts of solidarity that I've seen in many years. And needs to be applauded. And I think it was very effective. I don't, I couldn't not being in other countries, I couldn't say how far and wide it got, but I do know it got a lot of attention in Venezuela. I know that Maduro himself thanked the collective for what they were doing and others there did. So I think that that is a great action. It was a creative action, and I think we have to be creative. I do take something good from the fact you might have seen that Tulsi Gabbard was the most Googled candidate after the Democratic debates, and her message is one which is tends to be anti-war. So I do think that there is evidence that, that, that people are hungry for this message right now and that we, we need to promote it and we need to amplify that.